Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Boris Kudamaka, and he is the founder of Zinva Watches. Boris, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. So let's first of all talk about Zinvo because I think Zinvo is a little bit different than a lot of the other watch brands out there, especially a lot of the other watch brands that we talk about on Superlative. And I think what makes it different is actually the very you know, uh, accessible price point. Um, you have for a number of years now, maintained a very democratic, accessible price point. And I think that that's a very noteworthy point because I think a lot of brands go the opposite direction. Do you, first of all, do you agree that this has been part of your strategy? Uh, There is definitely a strategy. And the reason behind it is we try to be a watch and a fashion accessory at the same time. And we have to stay affordable. That's one of the selling points of our brand on top of it being unique. Now, Boris, I think you'll agree as well that there's a tendency in the watchmaker space, even when brands begin at a, at a sort of very affordable price point, for the price to creep up. And what I find happens sometimes, and I like your opinion if you also see this, is that the price creeps up so much that the brand is no longer selling to the people that it began selling to and is now actually asking a completely different type of customer uh, to, to purchase its products. What are your thoughts on this, this tendency and do you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree with this. And I think the reason for a lot of brands starting at the affordable price point because they want to appeal to every consumer and kind of like gain traction in the market and put more units out there. And as they research their customers more and more, they figure out, okay, let's just keep rising the price point and improving the quality of our timepieces. That's what kind of like was the path on our side. However, we maintain the price point just because we understood that we we want to stay affordable for our consumers and make sure that they're happy with the product. So what would you say is the average price point right now? I know there's different models, but is there an average? Yeah, definitely. So our best-selling collection is the Bleed collection. Uh, it's around $300, and then you can get 15% off when you sign up for an email promo code. So people usually pay around 245 to $250 for a timepiece. Okay. Now, when the brand started, when Zinvo began, what was the average price point? Like, did it change? Uh, it did change, yes. So we kicked off in 2014 as an e-commerce brand, and the price point was 189 to 209 We had only two colorways at that point. And then we kind of like progressed with a better movement. We switched from Miura to Seiko, and then we increased the quality. So we kind of like went up 50%, but for the past five years, I would say, the price point has been the same. So uh, thank you for sharing that. So when you increase that amount by 50%, which is a lot, did you find that the consumer was very price sensitive or did you find that you were selling to the same person? Because again, I, I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the lower the price point, the more price sensitivity there is, meaning moving just $50 can fundamentally change whether or not a consumer can even consider you. So I'm just wondering if you had any experience in that when you had done that original price increase. 
we actually didn't lose customers. We gained customers. And uh, there was a reason behind increasing the price. As I mentioned, there was a movement. And then we had a lot of warranty issues with the um, crystals being cracked. So we improved it to Sapphire crystals. So that's kind of like another price hack on the price hike on the production uh, perspective. We also increase, uh, improve the leather quality, the steel. Uh, we increase the waterproof um, uh, quality and grade. So we kind of like did it step by step and our consumers who were a lot into the brand and to our innovations and new colorways and limited editions. They were happy that now they are getting a better quality timepiece for a little bit more money, right? Um, $100 overall but i think the customers became more happy with the product i would say oh oh let me let me clarify i I think there's a lot of good reasons that brands increase the price point for exactly what you said which was to um make the product better you had a certain idea of the of the quality that you wanted and you found that with your original suppliers you couldn't necessarily do that and so what you found is that you had to bring the product to the point you wanted to, to to have it at, which required really a modest price increase. Um, but sometimes even doing that, despite the fact that you have a better product, it can be uh, uh, difficult to maintain the same customers. It sounds like in your situation, the original customer you had was willing to pay more, still a budget amount in the scope of, of you know, of, of watches, uh, mm-hmm. but that you're able to bring the quality up. What stopped you from going even higher end? Or did you always know that you don't really want to go above about $300 or so? Yeah, I kind of think that if the brand is charging closer to 500 and over, uh, there has to be a certain history uh, behind the brand and behind the innovations. I felt like we were a relatively new brand at that time. I, don't, I, I didn't feel like we could go to that price point yet without any heritage behind it right so of course we're going to be 10 years old very soon in the next Congrats. couple uh thank you so much in the next couple of months so we plan to uh release a whole couple new lines with a larger price point which i believe will appeal to a bit different consumer because we'll have more and more innovation behind it um, however the current line i don't feel that it's very reasonable to go up in price by offering pretty much the same product just a little bit different colorways right of course we release limited editions we release collaborations uh, but we try to stay at a similar price point at all times now i want to go back to the formation a little bit before we talk about what you're doing next and you said that you started as a as an e-commerce brand what do you, I mean, I know what you mean by that, but explain a little bit about what that means and specifically what that doesn't mean, you know, contrast to the companies that we would not say were e-commerce brands. Of course. Yeah. So I was a college student uh, when I started the brand and, uh, of course, a lot of Instagram just kind of like came around. I think it was two or two and a half years at the time. And, um, I felt like I wanted to sell online and ship worldwide, right? This was kind of like the trend at the time. So I was so much into watches due to my uh, family being very enthusiastic about different timepieces. So I kind of like started doing research. We did the manufacturing prototypes and I was purely focusing on the manufacturing overseas and then kind of like shipping it from my own place at that time. Right. And I was getting very excited when I was shipping to the U.S. The next package was going to Dubai. The next package was going to like um, I don't know, Hong Kong, right? So it was very interesting and appealing to see. 
at the same time, you could understand that you're building a global brand, not just limited to like uh, mom and pop shops locally, right. walking and door by door and asking them to retail your brand. Right. So we kind of like at the same time, Instagram was helping us to reach the uh, consumers globally. Right. It's not like we had insights at that time on those pages. Right. So we were always kind of like trying to deliver the watches to the most amount of customers. And it just happened to be globally at that time. And e-commerce gave us this ability to scale pretty quickly. So I would say maybe in the next, since the launch in the next eight to nine months, we sold probably to over 50 countries. And it was extremely exciting for me at that time. What's the difference between using Instagram as a tool for your brand today versus 10 years ago? Because the platform has changed in a lot of ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I think oversaturation, meaning a lot more competition for notoriety or, or visibility on the platform is, is one of the things. But what was it like back then versus today to do that job of getting your product out there to people? Yeah, I, I think number one thing that changed is the reach, right? Uh, back then, the algorithm was very different about serving content to the followers, to people on a popular page. So... I remember we were posting with Daily Watch on Instagram or a couple of other key opinion leaders and the reach of our posts. I mean, we didn't have those insights, but the traffic on the website and the conversions at that time were much, much higher than it is right now due to the reach, due to the targeting and due to competition, as you mentioned, right? A unique selling point of our collection is because it's very different. So it catches the eye of the consumer versus, let's say, there's a lot of, Maybe not anymore, but a lot of lookalike brands. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And you couldn't re- really understand which brand it is, right? Because they all look the same. Our watch kind of like stood out. And that's why a lot of consumers paid attention to it. To it. Our watch is like you hate it or you love it. There's nothing in between, right? And so this kind of like this instant decision making of a consumer. Uh, when they saw us on social media, helped us convert uh, right away or tell the consumer like, hey, we're not for you. You can go and shop somewhere else. But at this specific moment, like we have nothing to offer to you, right? So I think the biggest benefit of social media, Instagram in particular at that time was the reach and the uh, amount of traffic that would come to our website. So that kind of like helped us scale up to the brand we are right now. So... Just thinking about the people listening who may not be as well-versed in all this, you know, the reach when Boris is talking, again, correct me if I'm wrong, has to do with how easy it is to reach a lot of people. Meaning you post something or you work with a couple of partners to post and you Mm -hmm. can relatively easily get a lot of eyeballs. Whereas today you do the same action and you comparatively get a lot less eyeballs. What are the solutions or alternatives are there new ways today of getting the same eyeballs is it about paying for it what is what is instagram's alternative to what they used to offer i mean i think they want want us to pay uh through their ad accounts so they can so we can increase the reach versus at that time we used to pay a page or a key opinion leader at that time right so they uh, we could get eyeballs in the same perspective, we utilize social media a lot. Uh, we utilize uh, overseas targeting. We do a lot of segmentation. We're trying to kind of like increase the conversion rate on that reach. Uh, however, I think Instagram changed the, the way the platform works is we need to pay through their ads, through their marketing uh, accounts, right? 
to make sure that the brand has enough exposure or no exposure at all if that's not something they want to do. So again, I want to frame this a little bit because there's a very interesting moment in history that this was even uh, possible to do, meaning a company that was begun by an entrepreneur with a relatively low budget, obviously a lot of enthusiasm. You, Boris, mm-hmm. are amongst a good number of people found that if they had a good idea, an eye-catching idea or something compelling, you could use social media as sort of free marketing or very low-cost marketing, whereas in, in traditionally you wanted to uh, make people aware of something, you had to buy billboards, you had to buy TV and radio spots, you had to have ads and publications. You needed to put a lot of direct spending into getting word out there, whereas because of the the sort of nascent nature of some of these social media platforms and they weren't totally focused on by marketers yet – innovative companies with cool products to sell could reach a lot of people in a way that they could never afford to do. Now, and this is where sort of I think is interesting to think about, we're returning maybe a little bit to this traditional way, whereas these platforms recognize that they are just like radio or television or newspapers where there's an editorial message and an advertising message and the advertising message often needs to pay for it. Would, Would you, does it, does it, it make you apprehensive to think that you have to uh, now invest in advertising in a way that traditionally was done, but you weren't set up to incorporate when you began because there was a sort of very special kind of uh, marketplace for communication. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, kind of like going back to your words about the budget, when we started advertising Instagram, uh, our budget was probably 3% of what it is right now. However, we had the larger reach, right? So I remember the times when Daily Watch was charging $250 for the post, right? Right now it's probably a couple of thousand, right? right? And you would probably have less reach. So I believe if I started the brand in the past 12 to 18 months, I don't think we would be able to survive with the product that we have right now, just because the market and the consumer perspective changed a lot. However, the biggest issue would be the marketing budget. I started the brand with $700. At that time, I I prepaid the mold fees. We got the samples and then we started doing advertising. So it was kind of like a very lean bootstrapped brand. And then it kind of like escalated when we released the plate. So right now, I would say it's impossible to start on a similar budget. So I believe I was great with timing that, at that time. Or maybe I was just lucky. I'm not sure, but it kind of like worked out. I mean, look, I'm in the same boat with a blog to watch. I mean, I started a blog in 2007 when mm-hmm. to get traffic, all you needed was interesting content. So I relied on Google search. Uh, this was even before really social media uh, to receive um, a healthy amount of traffic just in exchange for having good content on the website. Today, a blog to watch is such a large website with so much uh, sort of search engine optimization built in over years that we mm-hmm. continue to benefit from that. But what I know is that if I had to start today what I did in 2007, I would never be able to, in this environment, uh, play catch up. It w- there's nothing I could do to get that uh, now notoriety, or I guess you could call it authority, you know, website authority that I have with Google. And if I had to rely on social media to get the traffic, as some other publications do, I would be in a similar situation to small brands where I would essentially have to pay for a lot of it. And so you and I both are lucky. Yes, we had good ideas, but we did benefit from a moment in time, which is now quickly ending, 
that it was relatively easy to get attention for a very wide consumer base. And I think we have to acknowledge that we had that and now recognize that we have a foundation. We have to think more traditionally moving forward. That's just my personal belief. I support it 100%. (laughs) I know there's not too much else to say. Now let's talk about the product itself. And you said something Mm -hmm. that was so important that was eye-catching, right? Because if Boris had a boring idea, even if it was different, if it wasn't eye-catching and compelling, you never would have set, had people say, hey, what's that? I want to know more what that is. I want to check it out. So talk about, I guess it was the blade that was then the mm-hmm. most popular. Now is, what was your idea behind it? Where did you get this idea? And what did it end up turning into? And why was it so compelling for so many people? For sure, yeah. When I was thinking about launching the brand, right? Like I had, I knew nothing about the watch business at that time. So we released the very first watch, which was affordable, $119. It was a different style and it was a mass market appeal, right? Uh, we kind of like took inspiration from some other brands and I was just testing an idea. I was working on the blade because I wanted to have something interesting to offer. At the same time, I knew it has, had to be affordable and decent quality. So the consumers would not just be upset about the product and spending $200. So I had an idea of this kind of like inspired air airplane and kind of like motorsports timepiece. So we just came up with an idea to put a turbine instead of the uh, second scan. So we found the movement. It was Miura 8215 at the time. It was enough torque to spin this. Uh, and then we kind of like built the watch around it. And it took maybe around four or five months for, uh, for sample to come to life. Um, and I love the design right away. However, I understood there were quality issues from my perspective, what I wanted it to be. So we kind of like did sample again and again, and it came up to a pretty interesting watch when it was on the wrist. And a lot of times when I was wearing the sample, a lot of friends or people at school were like, Oh, what is this? Can I see it? Right. So I understood we are onto something if it catches the design, right? Like, and I understood at that time it wouldn't be for everyone. So we released it and the power of social media at that time, I believe February. So we launched the watch in March, 2015, I believe February, 2015, Instagram launched videos at that time. So there were no videos before that. So we kind of like came into this trend three weeks later and a lot of people engaged with the video. And I remember like, I got the final sample. I filmed it on the wrist and I sent it to daily watch. And the guy was like, Hey, I'm just going to post it and see what people say. Right. Hopefully that post is still live on his page. I'm ex- actually going to scroll back and see. Uh, but there was immediate engagement, right? And people were inquiring about the watch. So I was like probably for two weeks responding to all these customer inquiries. But I understood that there was a demand for something different. And the mar- market leader at the time in our segment was Daniel Wellington at MVMT. Those right, were like minimalistic right. watches and they were purely built around e-commerce, kind of like nothing special to the watch, but a lot of special uh, approaches on e-commerce with the email marketing. I understood that I didn't want to be that brand, but I have to go that route if I want to scale and reach the consumers globally with the social media, right? Which is, was in, the easiest tool at the time. And we just started like heavily promoting this through influencers and through Instagram and then uh, through Facebook pages. Um, and yeah, we sold in the first year, I believe, 1,700 watches of this blade. And we had just two colors, silver and gunmetal. And I did everything untraditional to the regular watch industry approach. Like I 
didn't go to editorials. I didn't do billboards. I didn't do magazines at the time. We just, I was just purely building social media brand and at the affordable price point. And then we started to be approached by retailers, which were based in like Middle East and Asia. And that's kind of like where I got thinking about physical representation because we didn't have a storefront at that time. Right. I was running everything out of my apartment and that's kind of like where the business model of e-commerce started to transition into distribution model, which is what we are right now, right? We run probably around 90% distribution business, right? So, so, so most of your business is what they would call wholesale, where you're producing in bulk and another party sells it to consumers. That is correct, yeah. Now, now let, let's, I want to talk about the design a little bit more, but this is such an important area. And uh, <laughs> it sounds to me, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that at some point, you decided that the direct-to-consumer business, which is what you started as and what it's sort of known as, was having a diminishing return on investment, meaning you had to spend uh, too much effort to get people to your website and to convince them, uh, and that you could see a lot of problems with this model moving forward. The alternative or the solution for you was to transition to a wholesale model where instead of selling one watch at a time to consumers, you're selling bulks of watches at a wholesale price to a, di- a third-party distributor who's often a store who then themselves sells at retail or hopefully close to retail to their consumers. Is, is that right? Correct. Yeah. And it came in multiple stages. And the reason why I kind of like decided to go that route is because we had so many international inquiries and people wanted to buy locally, right? Because they always had like, hey, you offer a two-year warranty. What's going to happen if like a uh, case back snaps, right? Or, or the movement uh, gets faulted, right? Um, so that was one of the things. Another was issues with, with international shipping, right? A lot of customs issues, all this kind of stuff. So it kind of like I came to a point where it's like, hey, we need to look for local representation in our best markets. At that time, I was the United States, right? So it was easy. You ship locally within two, three days, the customer has the watch and then you can do returns, repairs, everything you need to do. But we were selling at one point more watches overseas versus the United States. And that's kind of like when I got to think about it. And uh, one of our first markets uh, was Middle East, of course, and then it was Asia. And we came to a point where we found a local store where we would ship the bulk on consignment. And then if we had an inquiry from uh, that specific country, we say like, hey, you can go here and then you can try it on and buy it if you like it. Uh, that was one thing. And the second thing was if we would get the order from that market, this partner would ship it for us, kind of like a drop shipping situation, then they would pay for the unit. So was it hard that, to set all that up? Because I, I understand that finding the right partners and right system can be uh, an enormous trial and error. And you sounded like you just figured it out right away. No, it wasn't right away. It took <laughs> a lot of times and efforts. It's all in the communication and trust. I did a lot of in-person meetings uh, later in time, right? But at first it was, uh, hey, let's give it a shot, right? And of course you don't trust with them with the 100, 250 pieces, right? You ship a couple and then you see how it goes, see who pays on time, who doesn't. And then how they interact with the customers because at the end of the day, they represent your brand. So uh, I had a lot of friends for, at my university who were international students as well, same as me in the US, right? So I kind of like approached them and said like, hey, can you recommend someone? So a lot of times we would take partners locally, not from the industry and kind of like build their interest into, into the brand and representation. You, you keep mentioning school a lot. I imagine that at some point you would have finished school and continue on the business, but how many years were you in school and also running the business? It was total of one year. 
Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, it was my last year uh, in college that I started the brand and kind of like I finished and then I took it full time and yeah, just, just never stopped. So this was very convenient for you because coming out of school, you had a sort of job, you know, right away and you had a business mm-hmm. right away. Was, was this your plan? Was it to f- be an entrepreneur? Or this happened as maybe kind of an accident. No, this was initially the plan, probably not that soon, but I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So it was kind of like an idea that by the age of like 25 or 30 years old, I would have something on my own going on. So um, it just happened a bit earlier than I planned. Let's talk a little bit about this transition again, because I think this is so important. Um, was it a difficult thing to decide? Were you like, no, I want to do the direct-to-consumer model. I don't want to abandon that. Or the, were you actually ready to be like, let's go wholesale. That's what that's, I would prefer to do that. I'm trying to understand what your emotions were at this time. I was mentally ready just because I saw the support and engagement of people I was working with. I was not financially ready because the business model is very different. You cannot be selling to consumer at, let's say, full price or 15% off, and you cannot be selling at the same price point to the retailers, right? Because those also need their margin. So that's when we hit the wall with our 189 to 209 price point, and we had to go up. But to make it reasonable for everyone, right? For the consumers and for the partners, we had to offer a better product. So I kind of understood that the business could scale through that avenue kind of, right? And you could um, do local representation, increase the customer experience about the brand. At the same time, I felt like I'm losing control uh, between my consumers and my product and myself as the brand, right? So it, it was kind of like I had to evaluate a lot of things, but I'm happy we took that approach because there were, it was a tra- traditional model for the jewelry segment at the time. So you could, see a lot of case studies and how those people operate and talk to a bunch of brands and see how it works for them, right? So it wasn't too many e-commerce watch brands at that time. Now, the retailers themselves are not successful with every product that they sell. It sounds like when they had your watches, uh, they sold pretty well. Otherwise, there wouldn't be that interest. What was it about Zinvo watches as a brand or maybe the product as a blade that allowed it to do well in these stores? And what types of stores are these? Are these traditional watch stores or are these different types of stores that maybe sell other types of items as well? Yeah. So it was a mix, right? It, it was majority of like concept stores in the beginning. Uh, they were selling a lot of cool stuff. What helped the sellout was our social media efforts, right? A lot of times visitors would come to the store and say like, hey, that's a turbine watch from the Instagram, right? Can I see it? And then they would eventually buy it because of the price point and how cool it is. So that help, the mix between being unique and doing a lot of exposure on social media helped us get traction with those retailers. When that traction was kind of like going down, and but we were expanding them points of sales, we had to do social media efforts where we, for example, would drive a traffic to the store, right? Like we would advertise the watch and say like, hey, available in a store near you, the, person on social media clicks the button and then it shows the retailers in their area so they can actually go in and purchase it physically or even if it's online retailer they could buy it locally so the reason for success initially with those retailers was the exposure of the brand on social media right like everyone kind of like saw us at the time right now we have to do a lot of targeted advertisement to guarantee the sellout 
of our partners and so they can buy a larger bot from us in, in eventually. What, what works with them? You said targeted uh, marketing to ensure sellout. That, that's very generous of you and that's great. I wish more brands did that. But what's your strategy? Does it depend by market? How do you, how do you best spend that way? It depends by market. Uh, we utilize a lot our email marketing efforts because we have sold over 100,000 watches since we started, right? Uh, right. We have probably around 40,000 of them uh, has have sold online, but we have around 250,000 people in our database for the emails, right? So the moment um. we launch a new store or the new retailer in the new market, we send an email uh, to everyone in that country saying like, hey, this is the official retailer right now. You guys can inquire, you can call them, you can email them, or you can buy online. And we give everything, right? Uh, all the contact information. So we do this initial push and it's usually, let's say like we were launching Kuwait um, a year ago, a bit less, and we have four points of sales there. So we had around uh, 7,000 people from Kuwait, but we didn't, have, we didn't sell that many watches there. So it was a good opportunity. So usually when we sign on the retailer, we say like, Hey, we're able to provide this discount. We're able to provide this email marketing. We're able to provide this budget to um, do exposure of the brand and create on social media, right? It's either Snapchat, whatever works for them, TikTok, Instagram, and then people can reach out to them and buy it locally. So then the retailer, when they see the sellout, they will come back to us and say like, hey, this sells really well. Let us place a new order. And that, uh, so we kind of like offer an universe of solutions despite just selling them a product and then i don't want to hear from them in two months and like hey this is not selling can we return this like i don't want to hear it I w i'm willing to put in a lot of effort from our side with the assets that we have uh, to kind of like invest into a sellout and have it as a successful partnership hi this is ariel adams founder of a blog to watch with a message about ebay I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. What types of retailers do you personally like? You know, who do you think is the right type of partner for you? Who do you, you know, sort of stay away from? I mean, you've obviously uh, learned a lot through trial and error, and you probably have a good instinct as to what's going to work for you. I'm just curious, like, you know, give the profile of the right type of store for a Zinvo. It would be a store with not that many brands. I would say maybe it's five to ten. Very similar segment. Let's say something unique, but a bit more expensive, right? I, I can name the brands if you would like however Please. i usually yeah i mean like electricians is a great brand it's very unique it's a bit okay. more expensive so i usually look for the retailers uh, seven friday is another great brand uh, a bit higher price point but extremely high quality so we kind of like we understand that those brands educate the consumer so we don't need to educate them right like if mvmt customers comes to zinvo they're like oh why would i pay 300 dollars for this like weird design right they don't understand it so we need to educate and convert them, right? 
Seven Friday and electricians, for example, or Gorilla Watches, they educate the consumer for us with their communication efforts. And then we are standing next to them at a cheaper price point, different design, but being unique. And our customers usually interact, right? Um, the same, the same customer can have both watches, both brands, different colors or couple of blades of a different color. So I usually look at for retailers or distribution partners of the, those brands. Of course, the watch world is very small. So we kind of like talk all around with all those partners and we interact really well. But I would say that those are my criteria, right? Like I usually research a similar brands in terms of the competition in the market and I try to get on the same shelf with them. No, it's a, it's it's an effective strategy. I think one of the things I'm learning uh, slowly, and you're not the first you know experience I have with it, but there are these watch stores now around the world. Very few of them are in the U.S. actually, if any, that that sell a breed of product that sort of was never meant to be sold in the store. So it's not like there's oh there's Richemont Swatch Group and LVMH brands and Zinvo. No, it's these stores don't exactly. have any of those traditional brands at all and exclusively have these newer brands that maybe began with the direct-to-consumer e-commerce strategy that are a little bit different, definitely more youthful, um, and they just sell these brands and that maybe their maximum price point is $2,000 or something like that and the cheapest is maybe just a few hundred dollars, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the customer also has motivation to go and see what's unique in there, right? Like they... If you go into a Swatch store worldwide, and that's one of the benefits, you will see exactly the same watches all around. If you go into concept store with unique brands like Zenvo or Electricians or Sam Friday, you could see something very different in Dubai or in New York, for example. So the customer is very tempted to go in there and explore the options that are on the shelf and kind of like buy something for themselves as a part of the experience. So I believe we are one of those brands that are offering something unique to the consumer, but also generate their interest because we're not the same as all the other majority mass market brands. So these stores, I mean, am I right that there's really not a lot in the U.S., if any? Because it seems to be something that I found mostly in Asia. Yes, that is correct. Asia and and Middle East because those consumers... Part of Asia, technically, you know? Yeah, well, Southeast Asia is really good with this, like Malaysia, Singapore, yeah, Indonesia. Yeah, so many. Yeah. But like, but the U.S. is none, right? Yeah, we don't work with any in the U.S. And we've had a couple of retailers, but I think the issue with the why U.S. doesn't have this concept is because every consumer is so used to buying online. So usually um, any store in the U.S. is kind of like a showroom where you can go in, choose the color, understand the fitment then you go online and you buy it so that's why the model by itself uh, doesn't survive in the u.s while in indonesia for example right we have a partner with six or seven other brands in the store the customer understands hey if i see a u.s brand with the local representation at the same price point as online i better buy it because if i buy it online with 15 percent off i will get hit with customs and i will wait forever I might lose a package as well. So the the international expansion is very important to local partners who understand the consumers, who can talk to them in their language, because English is not their first language and probably not the second. So if they can communicate in the same um, language and kind of like have a very similar 
mentality, I think that's what sets yourself for the for a success internationally. So. You know, let me let me comment on that because I I love these stores. I think the concept is cool, especially since the price point is not crazy high, and they tend to have very distinctive looking watches. Um, that's very interesting, Boris, telling me about how there's less comfort uh, or possibility in certain regions to buy online, and therefore these make sense. But I want to maybe challenge the fact that these wouldn't work in the U.S. Uh, if the watches are cheaper online than the store, okay, I agree that there could be a problem. But provided they're the same price, mm-hmm. I do know that most consumers want to try a watch on before they buy. doesn't really matter the price point. Um, mm-hmm. And so if it provides them an opportunity to try it on and the, and the price is the same and they had a good experience with the salesperson, they're probably going to buy right there. I would say that this is just something which is seen as risky in America because they're used to dealing with far higher margins. Rents at high traffic areas where people are walking uh, tend to be very, very high. And there's sort of a fear uh, that it, it just it wouldn't necessarily be profitable. And that may be true in many places, but I think that there are these out-of-the-corner places with high traffic, smaller storefronts where this could work very, very well. I'm wondering if somebody who had more of a business plan wanted to sort of franchise this out uh, or something like that would do well um, in the United States. I just feel that there's sort of an untapped area there because we agree that it's a con- concept that works and it just mm-hmm. hasn't really been tested. And, and not just America, Europe for that matter as well. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be very tested. Maybe I just look at the scenario in the U.S. and the consumer behavior where the consumer goes into Nordstrom, for example, I, w- I was in talks with Nordstrom right before COVID, right? And we kind of like had an agreement uh, signed and there was a consignment. So I understood that we're giving us out on pieces on consignment to their best 20 stores. And this would be just a showroom for us because the consumer would try it on and they would just wait for a Black Friday sale, right? They would wait for a promo code or 15% off as they sign up. So I, I just believe that the mentality of the consumer in the U.S. is do online shopping, at the convenience, at, at the better price point than what they could find offline. So I've, I've never had an experience with such a retailer uh, in the U.S., but I would be happy to do so if there's any listening to us and would be happy to reach out to me. Probably something that you're too busy to ever do, right? Because I feel like it requires someone like you to under, that understands all these angles to be a part of this. I mean, it really is a team effort, right? Like someone needs to understand the product. Someone needs to understand uh, real estate and retail. Someone needs to understand marketing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it needs a bunch of stuff. But, you know, I guess one of the issues is everybody in the watch space wants to be a solo entrepreneur or a soloist. There's very few functioning startup organizations, which is like a group of people, right? Yeah, I would say every watch <laughs> watch brand that I know, I think it's a solo founder, right? Except MVMT. So those are two guys from college. But I think all the other brands are like, it's just one, one founder. What was your feeling when MVMT was acquired by, I think, Movado, right? Yeah. What, what, what did you feel when that happened? You must have had a real strong emotional reaction. Yes. So I really loved it because it kind of like proved a point where a very big conglomerate that is used to a very different um, selling strategy is going and exploring brands that are reaching the consumers directly versus the salespeople or the stores and everything. So it was kind of like a proof of concept that whatever we're doing, we are on the right track. Uh, Of course, we're not the size of MVMT, but I was happy to see this because it was kind of like showing that 
a very well-established company is ready to interact with a very young brand if a young brand has a certain assets or access to the new customer profile for them. So it, it was really good to see. It was kind of like um, a proof of concept for our industry. Do you think that Movado needed to buy MVMT for what they offered or could they replicate themselves? I'm not saying that they could. I'm just wondering from your perspective if what Movado is after they had to purchase rather than do by themselves. I don't think they would be able to replicate the e-commerce side of things. I knew that they wanted to bring MVMT into the offline world to kind of like offset the purchase price and the brand didn't work in distribution just because the e-commerce margins are very different from distribution's margin. And, and that's something we went through from our 189 price point to 289 just because of the margins and the what retailers and distributor partners asked for. And the, the MVMT brand didn't work offline in many, many markets where we have the same partners with Movado. Uh, however, I don't think that for the U.S. presence, Movado would would be able to represent uh, to replicate it, just because MVMT did an amazing job by reaching the consumer by being a trendy brand and talking to the consumers through the social media in a very aggressive and efficient way. So I think it was the right purchase for them, and, and it was it was very noteworthy in the industry. Uh, one of the things that I remember MVMT saying they had an issue with, which I met, which is not uncommon. Seven Fridays had the issue. Maybe you've had the issue. Is mm -hmm. in understanding how to repeat sales. Uh, Seven Friday, probably one of the most successful, having people be multiple owners. But all the brands, especially MVMT, I think was particularly sensitive to having people buy one of their products. And then it was very difficult to get them to buy uh, too many more. What do you think is the solution to that problem? So that's something we are facing right now. And the reason for it is like we've had the blade for nine years, right? Of course, we improved the quality, but overall the timepiece is the same and we've been releasing the limited editions, collaborations. So our retention is around 30%. Uh, and this is globally, right? Through partners or through online. How, however, it's time to innovate and offer something different because if you look at e-commerce, right? Like initially the trend between like 2012 to maybe 2017, people are going after the product. If you have a cool product, despite the brand, people will buy it, right? Like there were a lot of trendy products that were up and down in the demand. Then so, since 2017, then to maybe like 2020, people were buying the story and the brand, right? So now the trend is people are buying the story and the brand and the product, right? So right now it's kind of like a combination of, of both. So right now, the only way to succeed, despite all these knowledgeable skills that you have, right? Like social media reach and everything. I think it has to be a product innovation. And if we look at Seven Friday that has been successful for many, many years, they always innovate, right? They have one shape, but if you look inside the watch, it's a lot of different interesting things and concepts. And that's why they have a higher customer repeat rate uh, versus us, for example, right? So we are at the point where we are about to refresh the blade early next year. And we're going to do innovation of two more time pieces that will be a different concept, but they will be recognizable by themselves. Right now, the blade is well exposed where if you would remove our brand name next to the blade, like if you would just throw away Zinvo and just call it the blade, people will still understand that this is exactly this time piece we're talking about. 
And a lot of times, for example, if I'm flying somewhere or if I'm, I don't know, in a different city and I wear my personal blade, right? People are like, oh, I've seen this watch in the store. So this is kind of like the exposure that we've had so far, but I think we've been on the same spot for too long. We, we need to offer our consumers, which we have a lot, right? Like we sold over a hundred thousand pieces to give them something new and something fresh and their rate rates. So the solution is innovation. If you want them to buy more, you have to give them something significantly different that they want. Maybe not significantly, but not the same, not a different color of the same collection, which we have been doing recently. But if you look at our collaborations with like the two artists, right? Like it sold out right away. The price point was $650. We did the collaboration, the licensing deal with Dodge, right? We released a Hellcat thing. It was sold out probably in four days or something, right? And we're about to drop one more. So it kind of like proves the point where we take our watch and give them something different, right? Like a different design perspective and the cool factor behind it. I would love for the watch industry to figure out some best practices on basically when you should update a product. Because we have some watches that are made for 20 years with minimal changes and others that seem to get a total overhaul every two or three years and you don't even know where they're going. No one seems to agree on what it should be. And I think there's actually a lot to benefit, you know, cars, what it was like every seven years or something like that, they try to do a whole overhaul. Do you think there's any benefit to having some industry best practices or should it just be every brand up to itself trying to figure it out? I think it's every brand up to itself. I know from our perspective, we're going to get on a schedule of every five years is going to be a refresh just because I think the product life cycle has to be like one or two years, you kind of like expose the consumer to a new product line and then you kind of like maximize the sellout year three, year four, and then on the year five, you slowly introduce something new and then you can kind of like go through the same cycle every time. Yeah. So this is what we're going to be on to the next scheduling, I would say. So we're going to have a three new lines and then they will be all just refreshed every five years. Now, you yourself... You said that even before you started the brand, you come from a culture of watch appreciation. I'm sure since mm-hmm. doing it, you've become even you know more of an experienced uh, aficionado. Sometimes brands have a tendency to go up market so much because the founder or founders themselves want a watch to match you know their own standards. Have you ever made like the super crazy high end version just for your wrist? Is it ever something you're compelled to do? Do you maybe want to make a completely other brand, or are you not at all interested? You're happy to buy high end, higher end watches from others, and you're you want your product to sort of be at the place it's at. I'm just curious what your feelings are. Yeah, uh, I do not buy higher end watches. I wear Zenvo or our competitors uh just to kind of like experience where we are because i strongly believe that you have to always look into competitors to see how you could innovate inside your brand i'm working on something very special for myself but i think it will be a limited edition it's a fully sapphire blade um so it's exactly the same style but it's made of k1 sapphire and with the same movement and everything so of course it's going to be more high-end and um this is probably going to be my daily watch where that I'm going to wear and test it. But I've never done anything on the, I would say better quality or different materials like carbon fiber, for example, just because I always want to wear a watch that we sell to a consumer to see if I can find any issues with it and then slowly fix it. And that's what I, I have been doing for the past eight years. Of course, when there is some, some novelty comes out on our side, right? Like a new color or a new, piece, I would say, I just wear that one. And then if I don't like something, we 
change. If not, I just wear it till something new comes out or the new samples arrive. So you're practical. You're, you're product testing all the time and you know that your feedback continues to be important in making the next product better, right? Yeah, kind of. I try to stay focused on this. Of course, I have a lot of samples that never uh, were released, right? Like bright yellow watches or glow in the dark ones. Uh, I have all those samples just because we try to experiment with materials. Right. If, if you look at our current lineup, right? Like we have a see-through dials, we have a silicone straps, we have, I, I like to innovate with the materials. Uh, we had forced carbon fiber at one point. We have a glow in the dark strap before. So I like to innovate with the materials. So I always, if I find something interesting, I always try to test it and see if it makes sense to release it to the consumers or not. I just, you know, I look at the core concept of the blade, which is a seconds hand that has a lot of blades looking sort of like a, a, a turbine rotor. And mm-hmm. the movement of it is, it's, it's visually impressive. It's fun. It looks nice. It's a simple concept. Um, of course, you know, there's the, uh, the tendency to think, think about how to make it fancier and fancier and fancier. And it's sort of good that you've been able to resist that a little bit because you could quickly get into weird watches that like only you and your closest friends could want to buy or afford. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing for us was the power of social media at that time. And we kind of like got exposure and the consumer could decide for themselves. Like I I hate it or I love it. Right. And that's, we, we were able to capture those consumers and try to scale inside those communities, right? Like if we have, two excited customers, they show it to their friends and then their friends also can start buying, right? It's not like we were producing on the Daniel Wellington lookalike, right? Where people would be like just shopping for the price. Daniel Wellington at that time was probably like one ninety nine, right? But there were a lot of brands like Paul Hewitt, for example, for $1.29, right? There is no difference except the price point or the colorway at that time. So I think we were just kind of successful by scaling it through social media and through a different product that look differently. Let's talk about protecting your brand. You know, your visual concept has certain elements that are difficult to protect through intellectual property. And if you have something successful, others are going to try to do a lookalike thing. That's just the nature of the watch industry. What have mm-hmm. you done or had to do to protect your brand, both from a, a, a you know personality as well as visual perspective? Uh, well, of course, when we started getting traction, we filed all the design patents in all the countries that we are selling uh, in. Uh, yeah. We filed a trademark. Unfortunately, we had to face some um, replicas, India and a couple of other markets in Asia. So we had to fight those legally. And unfortunately, we couldn't get any financial reward. Uh, however, we took around 20,000 pieces of the market. Um I think we are self-protected by the design just because it's a very unique piece. And I hope that when a lot of people start looking into replicating something like this, they would understand the challenges that it's not that easy to, it's easy to replicate, but it's not that easy to scale. And I think that's one of the reasons if you compare brands back to back, for example, our brand and MVMT, they're, they have sold much more watches at a much larger uh, revenue than we we do, right? And that's why a lot of replicas would go after BMT or some other brands like that versus us. So I'm honestly not too worried about it. I know that we have a brand identity and we have a certain image. And if someone wants to replicate, but at the same time have a different approach, I would be happy to see it just because I believe it would be a totally different brand. 
I, I want to comment on one of your strategies there. And again, thank you for sharing uh, your experience with that. And that is a strategy I don't think is discussed that often. And basically what you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know that the price it costs to make your watch look the way it does, especially in any number of pieces, is high enough that no one can really undercut you. So if somebody is trying to replicate your watch, they're going to find that's going to cost them about the same as, as it costs you, and they won't be able to really get away with it. The, the, the people who are successful at making replicas uh, make watches that the, the, the original watches are, are being charged so much more than the manufacturing cost, meaning there's such a wide margin that someone can come in and undercut. Yet if your strategy is to never charge too much to begin with, then there's no incentive for someone to kind of undercut because it'd be too hot too difficult for them to compete with the real thing, right? And, and I, I think that's actually a very effective strategy. Uh, yeah, that's correct. And we kind of like a, took a very detailed approach about this, right? Like we have a direct uh, contract with Seiko to get their movements. We have a direct contract with all the parts manufacturer. I've been to China to set up supply chain many, many times. And I usually go there when we are expecting to kind of like have an increase in the sellout. Um, so I can go in and say like, Hey guys, like we're growing 20 or 25% next year. Like, would you be able to, um, keep up with the production? And of course we make adjustments and because of the quantity that we produce economies of scale can uh, kick in and we're able to negotiate better pricing. So I believe that if you want to replicate the brand with the same product, you wouldn't be able to hit the pricing per unit that we have right now. And that's why we're not, we're able to charge the same price over and over for the past five, six years, despite the industry average pricing going up. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things you do next. We talked about this big transition from being really a direct-to-consumer brand to being a wholesale brand. Uh, you talked about the need to innovate and having more things come out. Um, my question isn't just in terms of product what you do next, but as a business structure, how does Zinvo evolve in order to stay competitive? Because my, my guess is you want to you want to keep going. And what you know, and I think I know, and a few others know, is that to continue to do well in the watch space, you, you may have to reinvent yourself each few years. Even though it's the same uh, brand name and some of the same people, just given how things change, whether it's product demand or business structure, distribution, communication, you sometimes have to change yourself all the time. So how does the, how does the product and the brand and the management change for you in the next five to 10 years? To be honest, I, I'm mostly focused on expanding the product line. I definitely want to be in watches and not step into any different segment. Right now, the focus for us is for the next year is to expand the product lines and expand in markets, right? So we've been to Basel World in 2019. We were able to get 31 new markets during those four days of exhibition. Wow. Of course, some of them didn't work out. However, I believe it's a lot of times it's the market specifics, right? Like in some markets, the blade doesn't work. That's why we have different collections. So right now we're in a very close communication with those partners to understand what would be a good approach for those markets so we can gain back the traction that we used to have, right? So I believe for the next three to five years, our main focus would be a different market expansion, travel retail, which we have been successful for the past two years. We're the best-selling watch on Emirates Airlines. So next time you take a flight, please find us in the magazine. I noticed them recently because I was coming yeah. going to Dubai and back. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. So we innovated 
um, with the material, right? And that is like made of polycarbonate material, that blade, and it's the price point is one ninety nine. So we're back to our initial price point with a bit different material, but it's still uh, the best selling watch, I believe. It, they sell around six hundred pieces every month. So, um, so we're gonna go into travel retail, duty freeze, and new product lines. So we're gonna try to appeal and catch more consumers because the brand is somewhat recognizable right now. So we just want to take advantage of that, of what we've been building for the past eight to nine years. Now, maybe my last question, given the time, is about the brand. And you said something really important earlier that, you know, to do well, you not only have to sell a product, you also need to sell a brand, which I totally agree with. And I repeat to to, to companies I work with constantly. Mm -hmm. The the question is, when someone sees a Zinva watch, what do you want them to think about the person wearing it? I guess the question is, what do you want the brand personality to be? Describe what the lifestyle should be. What should someone who wears the watch or seeing someone else wear the watch, what do you want them to be thinking? Because I think there's good brands have very specific statements. You know, this brand means this when you wear it. This brand means this when you see one of their products. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing to do, and only the best brands really have the specific statements. But at least, you know, brainstorm a little bit what some of those those thoughts and feelings and statements could be when people uh, experience the Zinva brand. Yeah. Look, our, st- our statement has been there for years. It's stand out from the crowd, right? And the reason for this is if you put 10 watches on a, in front of you, you can identify Zinva right away. So um, this is our scenario that we try to follow at all times. Our customers are very different. We have real estate brokers, we have um, CEOs, we have um, motorbikers, right? So it's a very different appeal. I strongly believe that I want our consumer just to understand the value of our watch as a fashion accessory versus the very high-end piece, right? And a lot of customers that buy our watches, they also own higher price point watches, but they love it just for what it is, right? And it feels like it's more expensive than $300. I strongly believe that our consumers can have any lifestyle as long as they enjoy the product. So I know it's probably not the right statement to kind of like, I want to appeal to everybody, right? A friend to everyone is friend to no one. But from what I have noticed is you cannot have like a very specific customer profile with our brand, just because you never know what deep inside the person wants to feel when they have this fashion accessories on their wrist, right? Like a lot of times when you wear a pink blazer, you're afraid what people will think about you. But if you wear a watch and it's a very kind of like a small accessory to your outfit, because a lot of times like watch is not very noticeable when you go to a party or you go to an office, right? So we want this easier to get away with making a statement. Exactly. So we want this unique statement on the wrist directly to, uh, for yourself versus for everyone else who you interact with. So let me, let me remind you a statement you made earlier that I think is relevant to this. You're talking about the polarity. You said that early on when someone saw the blade, uh, they were like, I love it or I hate it. Um, and mm-hmm. I actually think that you need to maintain that because when you have that polarity, when you have some people who hate you, that also means other people love you. And no brand can have everyone love them. But if no one really likes you or hates you, then no one feels anything. Exactly. So that polarity is something that I think you should continue to remind yourself of as being 
beneficial for you in the beginning and increasingly necessary now. It means you will turn off some people. That is true, and you'll have to deal with that, and that's fine, because on the other end, there'll be people who will like you even more. And the people who like you maybe won't go on social media and be like, I love you, Zinvo. The people who don't like you be like, hey, you're not for me enough. Really, that's what they're saying, right? They're like, why aren't you more for me? <laughs> and and it, it takes some discipline to be okay with that, even for the retailer side. But if they see that it does translate into sales and performance, I think it's okay to, to acknowledge we're going to be polarizing. And I think that's worked for a lot of brands these days, especially in today's environment. Yeah. Uh, look, our Blade collection always gets an emotion out of you, right? It's either you don't like it and you're like, don't show this to me, or you love it and you want to learn more and you want to buy more and eventually would reach out and, I don't know, with some suggestions. So we are always trying to go for that emotion. And even if a lot of people don't like us, but we have a segment of customers who love us, we would be working for those customers because there are still enough people for us to become successful because of them. Uh, that's that's basically the end of the show. Boris, tell people where they can learn more about you and, of course, Zinvo on the internet. Our website is uh, zinvowatches.com. My personal email is boris at zinvowatches.com. Feel free to reach out. Um, you can Google the brand and see what media is available out there. And our Instagram is just Zinvo. So let us know what you think. If you guys need anything special from me personally, just reach out and we'll make it happen. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Boris Kudamaka, founder of Zinva Watches. Boris, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blog to watch.com.